You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Ralph Gibson. To listen to the full interview or hear more about the Creative Process projects, please visit www.creativeprocess.info. See, see, in those days, in the in the late '50s and early '60s in photography, artistry was considered was indicated by technical mastery, because people didn't understand content in photos precisely. They didn't they didn't re- realize that, that it's content that makes something art, not not the not its formal properties necessarily. So I I, I did advance technically and. Uh, by the time I came out, I went to art school, San Francisco Art Institute in 1960. I was very advanced technically, and so my instructor said, how do you get that look? But then I, then I was invited to work for Dorothea Lange. What and, a wonderful opportunity. Yes, but that was purely on the strength of my technical expertise. And I quickly divined that she, she knew little or nothing of, of the mysteries of the darkroom. Right. It was, as I've, I've stated many times, it was the sheer force of her will that... The, the, that compelled the medium to obey her intention. So, so one time I was showing Dorothea some early photographs. I said, I want to be a surreal photographer. And she said, you could just be yourself, Rafael. The rest is the name. Yeah. And then later I'm working with Robert and he says, uh, we're making uh, me and my brother. He said, I might fall flat on my face on this one, but at least I'll do something original. I didn't, see, I didn't want to be another Magnum guy, which, which I had already achieved at an early age. I, I really, it all turned around when I made that picture of the burning beauty parlor because uh, after my parents divorced, they sold the house and my mother became a beautician in beauty parlor. And then she died in a fire some years later. And uh, when I saw this, you know this story, when I saw this burning beauty parlor, I took my camera and then I realized that as I was catharting my grief for her, I realized that I, I had a chance to, I didn't want to sell my soul in photography, I wanted to find it. <laughs> basically and so uh, my medium my relationship to the medium completely shifted as a result of this experience so then my next great decision was I decided I wouldn't be a commercial photographer because I tried to be a commercial photographer when I was young but I realized that uh, uh, they didn't really want what you do they want what was currently in vogue. They claim they want you, but what they really want is a little bit of you and a lot of what's currently going on. Right. You see, every artist finds his or her path in a completely unique, previously undiscovered way. Right. Their signature. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the quality in their work, but I'm just talking about how they arrive at what they do, how they, yes, their visual signature as well as their, as well as their, uh, as, as, as how they're going to make their lives. Right. You see, because it's a very interesting thing as an artist. Until you succeed as an artist, mm-hmm. you're, you're below Clochard. You're really a bum. Yeah. Then the minute you make it as an artist, you're like a priest. Mm-hmm. S- society loves a, uh, a recognized artist and sneers as a, as, as a failed or struggling artist. Yeah. That this is this is something I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And then once an artist is successful, uh-huh. you're you're welcome at all levels of society, from the very top to the bottom. Oh, you're an mm-hmm. artist, and so this is a very interesting uh, experience, also. Initially, when when I wanted to publish *The Nambulus*, it was predicated on two two stimuli. 
First of all, the decisive moment by Cartier-Bresson yeah. and The Americans by Robert were the two books that had most powerfully impacted me. Somewhat less uh, perspective of nudes by Brandt and American photographs, but uh, there was no infrastructure to, uh, for photographers to, by, by which they could become recognized other than a book. Yeah. So a book was fundamental, but then I really wanted to make a book that hadn't been made before. And I found myself drifting towards this dream thing. The work just announced itself and I was just, I was just there to make it. So uh, I worked on, trying, while I was trying to get the book published, which, which I couldn't do, nobody wanted to publish it without changing it, I continued working on it. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of three years, it was, it was one could say, finely tuned. And uh, I was able to, a graphic designer friend of mine, Bob Overy, threw me a job that gave me enough money to uh, pay the printer. And uh, three months after the book came out, I had my, an international reputation in a, albeit very small or non-existent field, art mm -hmm. photography, but I was, I was on the way. Mm -hmm. And I started getting my first little grants, national endowments for a couple thousand bucks mm -hmm. and stuff. And, uh, I was able to uh, start my career. And from when I was struggling for recognition and success, my, my Faustian pact was, I want just enough recognition to be able to do my work. Mm. And that's what I've gotten. I've gotten all the recognition I deserve, no more, no less. I am responsible for every square centimeter of everything in my frame. There's nothing going on in the background that I didn't know about. There's no, there's no happy accidents. What you see is what I saw. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the real content of my photographs is my looking at something. It's not what I'm looking at. It's, 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 my, it's the way I feel when I look at it. You see, that's why, that's why if I just want to include a detail of a, of, a, of a shirt or something, that's what I'm looking at. And also, I mean, pre predominantly you use the the vertical, the... Yeah. I discovered that the horizontal frame, as far back as when I was a photojournalist in Magna, yeah. the horizontal frame in Western society, the golden means primarily, yeah. has been the proportion of narrative. Cinema, television, computer display, iPhone, they're all horizontal. Yeah. And you see, I'm not a storyteller. Mm -hmm. In my book, I, say, I quote Samuel Golden, who says, if you have a message, send a telegram. I, I'm a formalist. I'm interested in reducing the, the visual experience to, to, a, to a, a set of shapes, a vocabulary of forms and shapes. What I'm trying to say, I, I seldom see anything horizontally. So those, those are the good aspects of what digital enables the, the trained or experienced person to do. What are the negative aspects or things we should be aware of as it's changing our relationship to image and sound? Well, I did a TED talk a few years ago in which I stated that there is no longer any visual illiteracy in the world. Moholy Naj in 1925 said the illiterate of the future would, somebody, would be somebody who didn't know how to do the darkroom. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in, in less than a century, uh, everybody in the world, there's five billion people with cell phones and they're all photographers pretty much, you know. Yeah. So we have visual literacy thanks to a software. Mm -hmm. However, the same software that makes everybody literate makes everybody's pictures look the same. Mm -hmm. 
You go on Instagram, you go on any of those JPEGs, they're all identical. That's the least of my problems. But, uh, and I don't think, I actually don't think there's any negative or downside to what's going on. I think that, I think that it's evolutionary. Let's, let's approach it from this point of view. In 1950, there were three billion people in the world. Now there's eight, eight billion people in the world. Uh, you can no longer send a penny postcard or develop film and send a, send a three by five snapshot. You basically need to send a JPEG. And we'll maintain as much cohesion on the planet as we can. But I think the internet and technology are the result of society's, humankind's, humanity's needs. One of the questions I, I like to address for students is how we can celebrate creativity and bring that into our educational um, system as a way to imagine a better tomorrow. How can we harness what you have naturally, what other artists have naturally, to create systems that better serve our, our young people? I think it's called YouTube. <laughs> I am online yeah. every night. I yes. take tutorials mm -hmm. five or six a night. Wow. seven nights a week. If I'm home, mm -hmm. sitting in my easy chair, I, I am online studying something. Right. And uh, while, while you are lamenting the inundation of, of, of images, mm -hmm. I'm celebrating the internet by, by learning more about recording, more about technology, more about studying French verbs, it, yeah, the, the list of it's things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just endless. And so that's really, I, I feel that, that uh, not only visual literacy, but all forms of illiteracy, as the great universities are getting jam-packed and not enough chairs because of the population explosion of grade-A grade students. Yeah. I think, at the same time, the Internet is, is educating the entire world. Want to get involved with exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.